The next day, the great crowd that had gathered heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. This crowd praised him. They celebrated his miracles and with great expectation told everyone about him. But they did not know him. They were waiting for someone who would rule with strength and might. But he came as a humble servant. They wanted him to finally bring their people glory. But he wanted to change them so their lives would bring God glory. They were expecting a general who would crush their enemies. But he came saying, love your enemies. They thought he could offer them deliverance from their oppressors. But he came offering deliverance from sin. This crowd would soon realize that Jesus wasn't going to be what they wanted. And they turned on him before they ever realized he was what they needed. So as they yelled, crucify, Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? Jesus answered, I am not that kind of king. His kingdom isn't what you see here. It won't be established by chaos and war. His kingdom is in our hearts. His kingdom is truth. His kingdom is goodness. His kingdom is righteousness. He is the humble king, the king of healing, the king of forgiveness, the king of love. Today, we lift our voices. We cry, Hosanna, save us. Save us from our sin. Come dwell in our hearts. Hosanna, we worship you. Jesus Christ, our King. On this particular weekend in the annual calendar that we travel through in our cultural context, we celebrate a day that occurred a little over 2,000 years ago in a city called Jerusalem, a day that has forever rung through the hallways of history as a very, very significant moment. And I gotta tell you, as I have dug into the reality of that day as it occurred then when these events took place, I have been reminded again this week and over the last few weeks of what an extraordinary day that must have been for the people. I mean, what an unbelievable thing they must have experienced when they were standing there on that day. I mean, the Jewish people that would have been with Jesus as he stood on the Mount of Olives, as he prepared himself to enter into Jerusalem, riding that famous donkey that we all know that's kind of part of the story, and all the collision of realities and events that took place to get him there, and all that occurred in that day, and all that was, was going to occur throughout that next week and onward, I got to tell you, the more I looked at this day, the more I realized that must have been a day. Man, I mean, if there's days in history that I would have liked to go back to and just stood like a fly on the wall and watched it unfold, this would measure as one of those days. The day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the day that the culmination of all the promises of God and all the reality that God had been unfolding and sharing with his people was starting to come together in a way that people could hardly imagine. 
In order to really understand why this particular day that we're talking about, that we're celebrating, the triumphal entry as we call it, was such a significant day for the people on the ground, and why I think the anticipation and the excitement and the tension and the the little bit of that kind of like fear factor was all sort of moving in and through them, why everyone was so hyped up about that day, we really have to understand uh, how we got to that day and how the people of Israel uh, were experiencing life by the time we enter onto that day. And and that's an important part. So just think about it, right? From an on-the-ground perspective, Jesus has been traveling through uh, Israel. He's been moving from Galilee down toward Jerusalem. Uh, He's been traveling through uh, gathering a crowd behind him. People have been listening to what he's been teaching, watching what he's doing. This is toward the end of the three years of his ministry on planet Earth. So this is not an obscure rabbi, someone nobody knows about, someone that's sort of on the fringes. This is some that is now really in many ways famous throughout the land. People know about him not only in the, in the, the world of the Israelites, of the Jewish people, but also uh, in the world of Decapolis, the, the 10 cities of, of the secularized world, the Greek cities. The people have traveled from there to come listen to him. He has been considered a wise teacher in among multiple different forms of, of thinking and philosophy and religion. And so he has expanded beyond even just the world that we might have thought he would stay in. Jesus has been traveling, and as he's traveling down, gets to Jericho, and Jericho is just kind of near Jerusalem. There's a a treacherous road that goes up from Jericho to Jerusalem. He enters into Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. Passover is approaching, and Passover is a significant time in the Jewish calendar, and when he enters into Jericho, that's where the Zacchaeus story takes place. You remember that Zacchaeus has to climb into a tree to kind of just get a glimpse of Jesus, because the crowds are so massive that they cry crowd in around him, and the disciples are holding them back, and and that's what we see coming into Jericho. So if you think this is a quiet Jesus walking into a quiet Jerusalem with 12 guys by his side, that is not the picture. This is a man that has declared himself through his words and his actions to be the probable Messiah, the promised one, the king sent from God to be the redeemer of his people Israel and to establish God's kingdom on planet earth and once and for all make his people a holy nation, a a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a a people uh, set apart for God, belonging to God to make his excellencies known. I mean, this was what the Jewish people were waiting for. And up to now, it seems Jesus may very well be this guy. In Jericho, a massive crowd joins him there. They follow him up to Jerusalem. As we're entering into Jerusalem, he's got people with him. People in Jerusalem are abuzz. They're like, oh my gosh, we've heard he's coming. The rabbi's on his way. And Right as we do this, the approaching holiday that they celebrate, the feast, the festival they celebrate, Passover, has deep significance in their history of rescue and redemption. All of the prophecies about the coming Messiah have really been prophesied around this experience of Passover. So you know the people are thinking to themselves, hold on. Three years, he prepares himself, he declares himself, he demonstrates himself. He's now entering Jerusalem. It's like the week before Passover. That's when the rescue is supposed to happen. That's what the prophets have said. This is what he is. Man, this is going to be epic. And that's what's going on. 
Now, that's one dimension. That's just what's going on on the ground, the excitement, the reality, the Messiah's come. This could be him. I wonder if it is. I want to be there when it happens. But simultaneously, there's a whole other dimension going on that's not just about this week or about the weeks preceding this week, but about a generation, in fact, generations of reality in Israel that has caused them to be so excited about the potential of this moment entering into Jerusalem. You see, Israel has been waiting and waiting and waiting, frankly, against hope for the reality that God might be sending a Messiah to come and rescue them. They have been waiting for a long time, longer than even what I'm about to give you, but I'm going to go back to David's time, just because in David's time, that was when things started going downhill in a way that caused Israel to be generationally in this trap of, of, of being bound and captivated by worlds they don't want to be part of. So David is king, he's a good king, he's an awesome king, he's a king God delivered to them, and he has a bunch of sons. And out of those sons, uh, typically in that cultural context, one of your sons would become king, typically the oldest. But at times, if the oldest son wasn't the wisest of the boys, you might be working some things to make some of the other boys king. In fact, it wasn't uncommon during that time in the cultural context that if a king had two boys, they would kill one of the boys because what would typically happen is if two boys were vying for position, they would get the land to split apart into groups and they'd be big wars and infighting, and so they just made it simple. Kill one of the boys, then we know who's going to be the king, and there's no fighting. And so in, in David's time, as the boys are growing up, uh, this, is, this is kind of the, the, the dynamic that happens in a boy, uh, in a household with boys, and, and David is planning to make Solomon king, uh, because this is what God has for them. Solomon has been gifted by God for this purpose, but one of David's other boys sets himself up as king prior to Solomon being announced. And Nathan comes to David and says, I don't know if you've heard, but one of your boys is about to set himself up as king. And so David takes Solomon... And he takes him to the city and he releases them in, him into the city riding on a donkey or a colt uh, coming into the city on this lowly steed, if you will. Now you would think that would be a bad move because you're trying to establish this boy as king and you're like, I found a donkey, that'll work, and send him in on a donkey, but that's not what's happening at all. Though you would think he would be riding in on a big white you know, Clydesdale and coming down the street on a white horse glowing in the night, that's actually not what they did. Here's what they tended to do during that time. If they were sending a king into the city to become the next king, and it was during a time of war, during a time of captivity, during a time when the nation needed a conqueror, needed someone to go out and to go to war for them and to, and to set things right out there and, and, and expand their territory, they would have the king come in on, on a big giant horse to say, the conqueror comes, prepare yourselves. But if you wanted a king to come in and say, my reign is going to be a reign of establishing peace for my people, uh, of making sure that all things are protective, that we don't uh, find ourselves in poverty and, and, the, and the ravages of war and conquering, I'm going to be a king of peace. I'm going to reign in peace. and I'm going to bring you peace. They would send that king in on a donkey or a cult, uh, kind of saying, this king is going to bring you peace. Do you want that king with the war or this king with the peace? That was sort of how they did it. So Solomon rides in uh, as a king of peace. He becomes king, and we see during his reign an extraordinary reign for Israel. I mean, a reign of expansion in all the things that create prosperity in a nation. All the peace and wonder you would want. Solomon reigns for that. But during that reign, as it comes to its end, and we see some things start unfolding, things go badly wrong. 
And actually at the end of Solomon's reign, he will be the last king that reigns over a unified Israel. At the end of Solomon's reign, Israel splits into two groups, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and those two groups begin to fight against each other. They are not for one another, they are against one another. Israel is not only surrounded by a world of war, but it becomes a world of war itself. And the kings that reign in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom are against one another, and it goes evil king, good king, evil king, evil king, evil king, good king, evil king, evil king, evil king, good. I mean, that's kind of the pattern. A boatload of evil kings and a few decent ones in between. And, and so you see this nation that is constantly in this turmoil of disunity and brokenness and fighting and evil kings and pol- politics and mess and everything you would hate. And this is their life. And then the worst happens in 722 BC. Assyria comes in in the weakness of Israel and wipes out the northern kingdom. I mean, wipes them off the map, takes them captive, hardly exist. It's finished. They're taken. And the northern kingdom goes down. And the southern kingdom uh, kind of limps along for a while. And then during the last pieces of the southern kingdom, in 586 BC, Babylon comes in, wipes out the southern kingdom, takes the southern kingdom captive, and Israel really, for the most part, is no more in many ways. It is now under Assyrian rule and Babylonian rule, and then the Babylonian empire expands beyond that, and, and, and Israel disappears into the captivity of the realities of empires. And from that point on, their story is a story of captivity. It was a story of brokenness and and, and fighting and sin and war after Solomon, and then a story of captivity. After the Babylonians take them, the Persians conquer the Babylonians and then take over the nation of Israel, and they become slaves to the Persians. After the Persians are taken over by the Greeks, the Greeks become their lords and rulers, and the whole Greek culture and philosophy infiltrates the Jewish reality of God, and, and, and and it shapes the way they think, and you can imagine how that secularized worldview is constantly on them. Then the Greek kingdom splits into two parts and they're ruled by these little factions of the Greek empire and then the Roman empire comes in the worst of them all and comes in with all their power to turn the whole world into Rome and they're stuck in that horrid place and the whole time they have this promise in their mind that their God who is still alive they think is going to come and send a rescuer a redeemer a king who's going to come and take them and then rescue them from this mess like Solomon in days of old come riding in on a donkey and so what do they have Throughout the time of all these crazy uh, experiences, multiple messiahs show themselves in the, in the story of Israel. You have all these different guys that get up and say, I'm the messiah, these zealots that got armies together and charged whatever empire it was to try to throw, overthrow them. An example would be during the time of the Maccabees. You know, the, 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 the Judah Maccabee got a bunch of people together, great leader, gets a, a, a team together, and it looks like he's going to finally bring peace to Israel. He is our messiah. But here's what inevitably happened. Messiah after messiah after messiah, you know what they ended up on? Crosses, every one of them. They were all crucified because once the empire that they were trying to fight overthrew them, they take that Messiah figure and all of that Messiah figure's followers and crucify them all. And so after a while, here's Israel's experience, right? Every time a new Messiah presents themselves, it starts going well. We're excited about it. The other empire takes over, crucifies everybody that was involved, and then our hope is dashed once again. Then another Messiah might come and dashed once again. And this is their story. Imagine if that was your story. 
You're part of generations of struggle and poverty and, and, and captivity. You're part of generations of stories of messiahs that failed. You're part of generations of a mess and you have this hopefulness and you've now heard that there's a new messiah on the scene except this messiah seems different than the other ones and he demonstrates power and authority in ways the others haven't and, and there's a group following him and you're now on the Mount of Olives on the week of Passover with him having declared that he's messiah and he's about to do something that's going to blow your mind. I mean, wouldn't you be excited? I'd be excited. I'd be standing there going, this is incredible. I mean, what is he going to do next if he is the guy? We're about to see something. And you know what Jesus does then? Jesus then, in that moment, begins to sequence out a set of fulfillments that are mind-blowing for the people that are there. Grab your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Matthew. Let me show you, now that we're standing on the Mount of Olives with him, and just kind of going, okay, I know what my generations past have experienced. I know what I've been experiencing as I followed Jesus through Jericho and up to Jerusalem, and now I'm standing here on the Mount of Olives. Matthew chapter 21, page 536, if you have one of our Bibles, page 536, or Matthew chapter 21. And it says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied to a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So here's what's happening. You're on the Mount of Olives, you're with Jesus, you're still wondering to a certain extent, what's he going to do next? We think he's the Messiah, he certainly said he is, he's about to enter Jerusalem, how is this going to go? And then Jesus does this, right? I mean, this is, this is awesome. He begins to act out a sequence of events and declare a sequence of things that are going to speak deeply to this culture about the reality of who he is. Remember that you're talking to a culture here that was a biblical culture. In other words, their cultural context for the fun quotes they threw around was the scriptures. This is what they knew best. They all knew their Old Testament scriptures incredibly well because at that point the New Testament didn't exist, so that was what they had. And they knew them well enough that if you said something to them, them, it brought about a context. We, in our culture, are a movie culture, a media culture. That's what we are. We're not a biblical culture. We're a media culture. Uh, that means this. If I throw a quote out to you, whether or not you know the intimacies of this quote, you immediately know what I'm talking about. I'll be back. Woo! Now, some of you are like, what do you mean, man? Go watch Terminator. If you really don't know what that is, you are, you, you, there's, there's a loss. I'll give you one maybe that, you know, for you Terminator non-fans out there, here, here's one. You complete me. Right? I mean, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I got it. I, I'm there. I mean, I could go on. I, I can quote from multiple different uh, points, and depending on exactly what movie genre you like, when I say a quote, what happens to you is it's not just the quote you understand, it is the context of the quote you understand and all of the implications of that quote. So in other words, you know by that quote we're talking Terminator, which is this movie, which means that, which is the conquering this and that, and you can basically go through the whole thing and go, I know what Renault means. And that's what this culture was. 
When you said certain things that were out of the Old Testament or did certain things that applied to certain prophecies, you immediately connected to the whole context. And if you were standing in a context that was already messianic, meaning that you were already assuming this might be the Messiah, you are listening for moments that he might say something or do something that you go, oh, 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 that's, that's out of Zechariah. Oh, 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 that's out of this. And go, kind of go, I get it. I know what he's saying. So this particular prophecy is from the prophet Zechariah, and Zechariah, it was known during this time, had made this messianic prophet that, a prophecy that when the king of kings came to redeem, you would know that it's him because he will ride into Jerusalem like Solomon did on a donkey, on a colt, bringing peace to the hearts of his people. So Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. Listen to this now. He's on the Mount of Olives. He's going to ride into town like Solomon did on a colt and donkey to declare peace once again for his people like Solomon did. He is fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy. And here's the best part. It's so awesome. He's doing this on the day that in the sequence of events for the Passover experience, they would be choosing the lamb that is going to go to slaughter for the sake of the redemption of Israel. You see, about a week before Passover, they would choose this lamb, and the lamb would be selected and prepared in order to be the lamb that would ultimately uh, paint the redemptive reality for Israel. That comes out of the great rescue story of Moses, who was a messianic figure in his time, bringing the people out of slavery by the blood of the Lamb. And there are prophecies in the Old Testament that declare that this person who's going to be the King of Kings to come and redeem His people is going to be the Lamb of God. Now, don't get me wrong. The people didn't think Jesus was going to get crucified. They didn't think He was going to be slaughtered. You see, they were tying it as we would. That just like the Lamb was the redemptive work for us, Jesus will be the redemptive work for us, the Lamb. So it's an easy uh, sort of connection to make. He is like the Lamb was... He is going to be our rescue. Now, we know in hindsight that included a slaughtering, but they didn't know that then. They were just tying it. So here you are, right? You're a Jewish guy or a Jewish gal standing on the Mount of Olives. The donkey's there. He's about to ride in. He's declaring the Zechariah prophecy. He's the Lamb of God entering on the day that the Lamb is selected. A couple days before Passover, you're going, man, Passover's going to be the best Passover ever. If you're actually there, there's a couple of people that were in town at this time. Listen to this. Um, in, verse, in verse 10 it says, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You see, the crowd is there, just random people in Jerusalem. I remember Passover's coming, so a lot of people have traveled to Jerusalem to come and experience the Passover. And it'd be like you going to Disney, to one of the parks, and you get there, or, or Universal, or whatever, and suddenly you're like, Oh my gosh, that parade's today? I wanted to see that parade. I didn't know it was today. I came today. It was just a day I had, and I came, and now it's here, and I'm so excited. See, that, that's, there were people in Jerusalem that were just there, and then they were like, who is this? And they're like, it's Jesus. And they're like, you're kidding me. I mean, this is the day he's coming into Jerusalem. Yes, it's like a donkey. Look at that Zechariah, and it's like a lamb thing, and, and it's like Solomon, and it's so awesome. And people were stirred up, and they were excited because Jesus was showing himself to be the King, the Messiah. And so what did the people do in response? Well, this is what the people did in response. Look at this. Verse 8, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before him and that followed him was shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
This was a messianic declaration from the people saying, we believe who you are. We believe what you said. We're with you. Now, if you think this was just a, a, an, an exciting day for them and they're all stirred up, you have to understand something else for a second. Just like it is always true when you choose to follow Jesus, it comes with an intrinsic danger to it as well. Because remember, up to now, in every sequence, the zealots who have claimed to be messiahs, who have entered into Jerusalem with their war posse, what ended up happening to them? They all got crucified, all of them. And what happened to their followers? They all got crucified too. So you have to understand, for the people to be entering into Jerusalem with Jesus, laying down their cloaks and laying down their palm branches and shouting, we believe you're the King of Kings, we believe you're the Messiah, was an alignment that they were making with Jesus that had an intrinsic danger to it as well. But at this point, they were willing to lay themselves down for that because they were so convinced that if you take all of the cumulative collisions, this was the Messiah, that they were going, this is going to be a win. I mean, that's going to be a win. So we're not going to get crucified. We are going to change the world. And I can tell you, if I was there, I, I, I think I'd be laying down my palm branch, man. I'd be laying down my coat going, if we die, we die. I mean, I want to be on this one. This is a, a train I don't want to miss. And so they jump in and they walk with Jesus because for the first time in a long time, there was hope again, wasn't there? I mean, there was hope again. Our king has come for us. Our God has rescued us. Everything's going to be okay. We're going to be restored. It's going to be okay. Have you ever felt a surge of hope at that level? Where you're just like you're so excited because something you absolutely knew was not going to happen is happening? And you hoped it would, but you kind of knew it wouldn't. And now it did. And now you don't know what to do with yourself. If you think that the most excitement occurred on the day of the triumphal entry, then you don't know the rest of the story. Because that was exciting. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it was exciting. If we were there, it would have been awesome. But they were still in that moment living in a limited view of what it would mean that Jesus would rescue us. They still thought it was Jesus establishing a political situation where the Jewish people would rise up and become free of all the empires and reign as the chosen people of God, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, set apart for God, chosen to do work for God. And they thought that this was the beginning of their uh, freedom on planet earth as the kingdom of God collided with the kingdom of earth. That's what they thought. What they didn't know was that the story was much, much bigger than that. See, if you think you're excited about the day of the triumphal entry, you should see what happens after that week unfolds and the next 40 days unfold and the full discovery of the mystery of the gospel is realized. See, because it was after this that Jesus then has an extraordinary week in Jerusalem, tipping tables and doing all sorts of awesome, crazy, cool stuff. And then at the end of the week, he is arrested, he is crucified. Uh, we feel the hopelessness of that and the loss of that, that this new Messiah is taking the same journey as everybody else. We're devastated, we're broken, and then he rises from the dead. And yes, we will journey through that this week, every day, into Friday, into the weekend. It's going to be an epic journey for us together, experiencing the heart-wrenching roller coaster ride that occurred for the people following Jesus that week. But at the end of that week after his resurrection and experiencing Jesus for the 40 days, uh, living on the other side of death, and then that declaration, I'm going to make you my witnesses into all of the world, and then the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, when the church figured out 
what was actually happening, that he was not just redeeming his Jewish people, but all of humanity's story, and he was coming for all of our hearts, man, that changed the game. And the early church started living an extraordinary story. We've read about it. When they were nothing like anybody else. They gave everything. They laid their lives down. Every one of the 12 uh, disciples that were following Jesus after the crucifixion and, and, and resurrection, all of them were martyred except for John, and he was boiled in oil and put in the island of Patmos until he died. Didn't go well for them, if you, if you think about it from a physical standpoint, but they all did it without a second thought. Thousands and thousands of believers stood in arenas around Rome during this, the era of Nero, torn apart by wild beasts, slashed by gladiators. And not a second thought, <laughs> take it, I, I stand for Jesus. All they had to do was deny Christ, and they wouldn't do it. It was an extraordinary change. Do you know why? Because the full mystery of the gospel was realized. Paul writes about it in the book of Ephesians. Listen to what Paul writes here. In Ephesians uh, chapter three, um, he writes this. For this reason, verse 1, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that has been given uh, to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. So he's saying, I, I think you've heard that the mystery of the gospel has been fully realized as God has revealed it to me. Watch what he says. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, when we realized that Jesus' coming on the day of the triumphal entry wasn't for just the Jewish people. It wasn't for just a people group to have freedom on planet Earth. It was for humanity to be redeemed and our souls to be rescued and our purposes restored and our lives changed for, for generation after generation after generation, for language after language after language, for culture after culture after culture. This was the great mystery of the gospel, a God that reigned even in death. Crucifixion didn't even stop this Messiah. And when we realized that, the excitement that was born from that was unbelievable. And the early church, the early New Testament church was born, and they lived extraordinary lives. They really did. And then, and then this happened. 2,000 years transpired. And over 2,000 years, this incredible revelation of the mystery of the gospel, though continually expanding and rescuing souls left and right through generations, changing lives like yours and mine, we just heard it over and over again, didn't we? Same story, same old deal. Jesus came. Yes, he did. Whoop, whoop. Exciting. He rescued your soul. Oh, good for you. Going to heaven. That's awesome. Just survive earth and you get to heaven. That's great. See, see, what began to happen is what always happens to us human beings. That which is new and exciting and wondrous, though it expands and it becomes newer and more wondrous, if we hear it enough, it becomes ordinary to us. You guys all experience this. I do. I got kids. I love my kids. I got a brand new thing. Oh, yeah, we're going to go to Disney, right? I mean, buy those Disney passes, $12,400 per finger. Now, you know how that goes, right? 
I got, I got eight kids. You could begin to do the math, right? I mean, you know, you're, you're traveling past your retirement at this point, and you're like, Let, let's go. And you, know, you spend the money. You're like, we're going to do it. Annual passes. It's so awesome. We're going to go so many times a year. You go for the first day. It's unbelievable. Oh, this is the coolest place in the entire world. Can we come here every day? No, not every day, but maybe every weekend. We'll see. Third visit. Been to all four of the parks. Done the rides. It's hot. You know how it goes. They're like, uh, do we have to do Disney again? I've seen the princesses. Uh, yes, we have to do Disney again. We're going to do it 5,000 more times. Do you know how much money I spent on this pass? And then every day you drag them out there. Come on, just enjoy it. Can we just go home? And then it's this one. Can we do Universal next year? How about SeaWorld? Anything. Just not this. Then you do Universal for a year, and what are they saying? Can we go back to Disney? This is horrible. Go SeaWorld. Yeah, can I do Universal? You see, it doesn't matter. They're all great parks. It doesn't matter. You give them five minutes, and what was new and fresh and wonderful is old and ordinary. Yesterday, we went to Universal Studios. We're doing that this year. It's going to be epic. Two days, and then we'll be done. So um, we're going there. And, and we, we, it was spring break. We didn't realize. didn't think. I, I, we never do the holidays. It's crazy. So it's April 12th. It's a spring break deal. We go. It's packed. We don't stand in lines because we choose to go on like afternoons in the middle of nothing time. So there's no one. But there were a lot of lines. So 70 minutes, 80 minutes. My kids are like, what does that mean? I'm like, yes, I know. We have friends at Disney who get us into all sorts of secret places, but we don't have friends here yet. We'll work on that. Maybe we'll plant a campus at Universal. So uh, here's the deal, right? So, so we're there. There's big lines. We're like, what do you do with lines? I got my eight kids in line, and they're like fighting with each other, and pe people are being thrown off, and I'm like, stand still. And, we, and so we, here's what we did. We're like, we're not doing the 70-minute line. That's crazy. That's death. So we walk around to find the 10-minute lines. They do exist, you know, 10-minute lines. Do you know which rides they're on? The rides that were built four years ago, those rides. Nobody goes to them anymore. They're old hat. They're awesome. I mean, they're awesome rides, but, but they're old rides, so nobody goes to them anymore. And then the parks know this. If you don't build a ride every year, a brand new ride, nobody comes to your parks because that's us, man. That's us human beings. So give the gospel 2,000 years to be experienced and known and dug into. Give it a few theology books and a few authors and a few preachers and a few stuff, and before you know it, the gospel is ordinary to us. It's ordinary, isn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's neat. Don't get me wrong, but... It doesn't feel like it did on the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem, does it? It doesn't feel that way, does it? It doesn't feel like all hope was lost and now all hope is found, does it? It just feels like the gospel, that thing you've heard. I mean, how many times have we not talked about it here at Mosaic? I mean, how many times have we not traveled through the great news of the gospel, the good news? I mean, I, I think I, I try every weekend to, to attach to it somewhere because it's just so extraordinary, but yet in the repetitive nature of it, it almost feels repetitive, doesn't it? I mean, I'll, I'll show you. I'll, I'll do it for you. Watch. And you're going to kind of go, ah, oh, it's this again. Can, can we get through it fast? Remember, we were created with extraordinary purpose and wonder, weren't we? I mean, when God created humanity in Adam and Eve, He created us to know Him fully, Every bit about him, every wondrous little part, we were supposed to know his freedom without any violation or, 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 or obstacle in between. We were to know God so fully we had no need for anything. Our entire life was just wake up fulfilled. That was our story. 
And every day that we woke up fulfilled, all of creation around us was created to shout at us the glories of God. Every little creature, every little flower, every little part of our planet, every star was only created so that we would know the invisible qualities of a master God. And so we stood day in and day out experiencing the fullness of God. And this was our life. And then we were created with one another in community. And we were to display the gospel to one another. The the good news that our God loved us and and that he was for us and that we knew him. And so we were to sing to all of creation, here's the glory of God, and and sing to one another, and and creation was going to sing back to us. This was our life. This was our story. And beyond just experiencing all of that, we were therefore created with purpose. Purpose to make God known, to image our creator, a purpose so extraordinary we didn't know what to do with it. So we lived it, and in our story, the enemy of God came along and convinced us of something, didn't he? He convinced us that a better story was to pursue our own divinity, to glory our own lives and our own stories, to set our own destinies. Why submit to God when you can do it yourself? Why image Him when you can image you? And we bought into that and we ate of the forbidden fruit so we could be like Him, know what He knows. And we didn't get divinity, we got death, didn't we? Death, just like God said we would. And death came with horrid things like need and confusion, and brokenness, and suffering, and violation, and deep depression, and horrid things. But underneath all of that misery was also this this voice in us that demanded for us to be gods and kings. And so we would look around, and everyone was our enemy. Everyone. If they didn't give us what we wanted, they were our enemy. And so we lived in this tension that the people around us were not for us, they were against us, and we were not for them, we were against them. And so we were only nice when it was benefiting us. And that's how we lived. That's how we lived. And it was so self-destructive that literally in stories like the flood and the Tower of Babel, God had to actually intervene just to keep us preserved. We were so self-destructive. And then God tells us, Instead of abandoning us to ourselves, he will come and he will rescue us back into this wondrous relationship of intimacy and this extraordinary purpose of imaging the intimate creator for which we were made. And when he came, man, he came big. He came in the person of Jesus. He entered Jerusalem. He died. He rose from the dead and he re-engaged our story, redeeming it, buying it back from the dead. And now you and I live differently because we are free again, still trapped in this body of flesh, still struggling with temptations that haunt us, but now they are nothing but an inconvenience on the side because our souls are free and our purpose are set. Now, it sounds neat, doesn't it? And you go, I've heard that, Renault. You've said that like 10,000 times. I got it. And now you're a little inspired. You're sitting there like, oh, that's good, yes. Good to hear that again. But you're gonna walk out these doors just like me into a thousand distractions, a million noises, The reality of a thousand shiny things telling you if you don't get those things right, you don't get a retirement. Kids don't go to a good school. You don't keep your spouse. You you don't get to have what you're supposed to have. Better be careful out there because it's a dangerous world out there. It's waiting to kill you. So you gotta navigate it well. See, and you believe that as I do. And the gospel is the side note, this thing behind us that we're like, it's special. I I grant you that because one day it'll matter when I go to heaven. But it's old and ordinary now. This last week, I had the opportunity to go and see a movie. It doesn't come along very often these days. 
with eight kids. It was midnight. And uh, no, I think it was 10.30 actually. It was early. It was awesome. Uh, I went to a movie and uh, took two of my friends and we went and watched Noah. Because you know, you've, you've read about Noah, I'm sure. If you haven't, go read the blogs. They're so fun. And um, uh, you know, they, they just rake, rake this movie over the coals because an, an atheist made this movie and, and he was trying to demonstrate that you can take a biblical story and remove God from it and, and make it an atheistic story and it's still fun. And so I read all those blogs and they, they talked about how it's a story about vegetarians and a story about um, yeah, uh, the environment and story about evolution and story about everything that isn't biblical. And, and I, I was curious because I'm like, wow, that, that's, that's, some, that's some harsh stuff. And then clearly this story isn't about Noah at all anymore. So I, I wanted to go and see it because I hate speaking to things that I have not seen myself. I, I hate speaking from other people's blogs because I don't know if you noticed, there's some crazy bloggers out there. Not, they don't think, they just love to make noise, right? So you read them and you're like, oh, that must be true because it's a blog. No, 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 it's not how it works. And so I, I went and watched the movie. And I went in with the right mindset, I think, because I was like, you know what? I mean, if, I'm go if you're going in to see the Noah, hoping to see an uh, accurate biblical story unfold, you're going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> it's not really like the Bible, okay? It doesn't follow the paragraph in the Bible about Noah, okay? Um, there's, there's some rock monsters in it and, and things that help him build the ark and some angels going back and forth and some other crazy stuff. But if you go in realizing it's like the Avengers, you know, and Thor flies around too, and so do these monsters, then, then it's actually a really enjoyable, entertaining movie, as long as Noah's just a character in the movie that is based based on some kind of a story that once existed in the Bible. And, and so I went in with that mindset, and I'm like, I just want to see. I just want to see what's going on here. Didn't expect much. And I will tell you, if you're going and hoping to see an accurate movie on the Bible, don't go bother. It's, it's not worth it, because it's not that accurate. I mean, Noah's in it. That's accurate, but that's about it. There's a boat, too. <laughs> I guess that works, too. But, but I was shaped by this movie. I was shaped by this movie. Because I have yet to see a movie, in my experience, that has better displayed the insidious nature of sin than this movie did. Honestly, I was blown away. I, the whole time I was sitting there and I'm like, how did this guy get this so right? I mean, it's so right. He's right on the money. I mean, I, I have not experienced a movie that has better subtly but beautifully integrated the story of sin into the human lives of these people and demonstrated in its subtleties how it haunts us and how it holds us and how it shapes us that we're not quite ugly enough that we're like demonic but yet so ugly that we're demonic, right? I mean, it, it leaves us just beautiful enough that you're like, maybe it's not as bad as it is, but it is. And I'm watching this movie and I'm like, yes, that, yes. Oh, that's so right on. And the story's got rock monsters, but other than that, the sin stuff, so right on. And even Noah himself, he realized in the story that this guy wrote, this movie, he realized the insidious nature of sin to such an extent that he was actually a man bent on destroying his own family while on the ark because he did not want this brokenness and sin to enter into the new world that God was starting from scratch, so much so that he was willing to murder his grandchildren if he had to. And this was his wrestle. How do I allow this darkness to enter a new world when I know how dark it is? And there was a moment in the movie where Noah had this vision and realized that the darkness wasn't just in the dark people, it was in him. And I was like, yes. Yes, we do not know the insidious nature of sin like that character in that movie does. So I will, I will go watch it again just to sit there and go, that is sin. That is darkness. That is our destiny without a redemptive Savior. 
See, we have forgotten what we were rescued from. We have, I'm telling you, because we've lived in life for too long. See, I came to know Jesus when I was really young. I mean, I, you know, it was probably around six or seven, I said the, the little prayer thing, but I'd been following Jesus already, just didn't kind of know it. I mean, he's just so, so much part of my life. I think I was one or two, and I'm like, yeah, Jesus, that's cool. It's just because of the family I grew up in and the place I was. So I don't have that testimony like, before I knew Jesus, I knew nothing because I was two. That's my testimony. <laughs> so all I've known my whole life is freedom. It's all I've ever known is, is freedom. You know what the great tragedy in knowing freedom is your whole life? Is you forget what you were rescued from. You do. And when we forget what we were rescued from, then the nature of the gospel becomes ordinary. And when the nature of the gospel, the mercy of God becomes ordinary, then we live ordinary lives, chasing after ordinary things because the gospel is no longer driving us to give ourselves wholeheartedly, lay our coats down and say, take me if you must. I follow Jesus. He gave me everything. See, we must go back and discover the nature of that from which we were rescued and stare deeply once again into the rescue that was affected us and know who we were made to be. I, I have done that on occasions in my life. I've stood on the, on the cliff of my own sin, those actions I've affected and then I've done this. Okay, Renault. in the Congo, a bunch of people go into villages with machetes and they do the most heinous things to women and children that you will ever imagine. Things we cannot and will not speak of here. So terrible that the mind can hardly imagine them. I know because I've seen the work of their horror. And we look at those men and we think of their darkness. We hate them. And then I place myself there and I go, okay, Renaud, you grow up in the Congo and you're six years old and some person shoots a missile from somewhere you don't know and it blows up in your village and your mom and dad are dead. And three weeks later, a guy comes to you from a place and he looks strong and he's got a gun and he looks powerful and he says to you, I will help you. I will help you grow up to pay back the evil that was done to you. And you go with him and then he starts telling you, if you wanna be a man, you gotta have guts and to have guts, you gotta be able to kill. So he takes an innocent person and he says, shoot them, show me that you're a man. You don't want to, but you do. And then you do that enough. You've got a gun and you're 17 now. You've killed many, many, many people. Life and death is nothing to you anymore. So you go into a village one day when you're 22 and you're with a bunch of your guys and you're high on some junk that you've smoked and there's a bunch of women and children there. So you slaughter them. Am I really beyond that? See, I stare into that and I go, no, 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 no. See, that's me. That's me, man. That's you. Don't, don't dream for one second that you're not capable of that. Oh, yes, you are. In our darkness, we are capable of terrible things. And if we were left to ourselves and Jesus never came, I'll tell you, there would be no Roman Empire. There would be no Jewish people. There would be no Mosaic Church. Because right before the flood occurred, right after that flood, we would have killed all of ourselves. We would have warred ourselves to death and the last man would have been standing king of the world and die of old age. And if he didn't, he'd birth a child and slaughter the child. That's how dark we are. But he did not abandon us. 
He did not leave us to that. He preserved us through the flood. He preserved us through the Tower of Babel experience. He preserved us through the Jewish people and all that he did in them and through them and around them, protecting them and using them to demonstrate to all other nations his love so that the nations would feel it and know it and experience it despite darkness. He sent himself here. He came in flesh and blood. He lived. He declared. He taught. He showed. He went to Jerusalem. He got on a donkey and he rode into town and he said, I'm here for you, and the king has come. And they cheered, and they celebrated as they should have. And then he died, and he rose from the dead, and he said, I'm still here. Death can't stop me, and it won't stop you. And they cheered, and they celebrated, and they laid their coats down, and they laid their palm branches down, and the world changed forever. And then 2,000 years went by, and here we are. And it's time, folks. It's time for us to stare back into that. That's why we celebrate Easter every year, so we don't forget. That's why we're here on Palm Sunday weekend, so we don't forget. So we are awakened again to this, that our King came for us. Oh, yes, He did. And because He came for us, everything has changed now. Peter writes in his letter to the church, 1 Peter chapter 2, everything the Jewish people had longed for is ours. Listen. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. But you now are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is who we are now, because he came for us. And that's what you walk into this week, folks. That's what I walk into this week. A week where we get to stare into our rescue and we get to once again experience the awe of what it really was. And when we do, when we do, what ought we to do with that? When we are awakened once again to what he has done for us, we are to do what Paul said in Romans chapter 12. And therefore, dear brothers, in view of God's extraordinary mercy, lay your lives down for his sake and for the sake of others. Paul writes in the book of Galatians, And he says it this way, this ought to be our life. Imagine if we were captivated by the gospel in the way that the people must have been on that incredible day as they entered Jerusalem. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Paul goes on in this chapter to say, don't be a slave to legalism, don't be a slave to lawlessness. Both are horrid. Don't be a lawless crazy doing what you want because you know Jesus and you can. And don't be a legalist stuck in the rules to try to be self-righteous. Live out the gospel. Look how he says it. He describes it this way in that same chapter in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Through love serve one another. The last two weeks in my home, My wife and I have been traveling through one of those sets of two weeks, you know them well, where we're not mad at each other, we're not angry, we're not fighting, we're just kind of living. You know those weeks? Just kind of doing your thing. Little irritated with each other on occasions for little things. The little bit of baggage from the past kind of lingers in. There it is. You're looking at your spouse, you don't hate them, you don't love them, you just, they're there, and you're a little frustrated, and uh, you you, you know in the back of your mind, "I, I still love them, I just, you know frustrated, not totally connected, 
So it lingers for a while, then you talk about it, and the talks don't go well, you know, because one of you brings it up, and then the other one feels guilty, and then you say things you shouldn't, and then they feel guilty, and then you both sit there feel guilty, and a night that should have been a connecting night is not a connecting night, it's a guilty night, and so you go to bed, and you hope the next morning will be better. Then you wake up the next morning, and it is better, not really, but you know, you're not mad, so you move on. And so, you know, Brooke and I have been talking the last two days about this and just saying, you know, man, this is, this is going on in us. And there's a part of me, there's a part of me that, that, that wants to just go, this is so dumb. But I love this woman. I adore her. I want to serve her. But uh, if I do, then I'm going to let go of all the stuff that she ought to be, you know, and then, then it's going to be unfair. And I, I'm just trying to help her, you know. <laughs> Oh, yeah. We confess our sins to each other in that way that says, I'm just telling you this so I can confess to you, but just so you also know what's going on so you can change and, and fix this. <laughs> and so over time, time fixes those things, but not really, right? And then I'm studying this. Just even, just even last night and this morning, li- literally, I, I'm studying this and the Spirit of God is whispering to me. Saying, how's, how's that going to change, Renaud, at the end of the day? How's that going to change? I'll tell you, it's very simple. When I am obsessed, captivated by the extraordinary nature of the rescue of Jesus, the gospel, the good news that I have been saved because he came for me, I will lay myself down and I will love my wife because I love Jesus and because Jesus loves me. And until that is true, I will be an ordinary story with an ordinary marriage, doing ordinary things. And I'm not interested in that story, are you? Let us stare deeply once again into our rescue and let it birth in us a gratitude so huge that it spills out of us love for those who we love most, love for our coworkers and our neighbors, those random people in our lives that we are interacting with that God has given us opportunity to speak into, and love for those who hate us and our enemies because we are ambassadors of the greatest love that has ever existed on planet Earth and ever will, the rescue of Jesus. On the day of the triumphal entry, the King of Kings came for us and declared it so. And because of that day, our redemption was affected, our lives forever changed, our freedom established, and we belong to Him. Let us live as though that is actually true. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank You for Your extraordinary and wondrous rescue of our souls. Thank You that on this day that we celebrate, a little over 2,000 years ago, You got on a donkey And you declared through your actions, Zechariah's prophecy, the lamb that was slain, Solomon's entry, and so many other collisions of things that made it absolutely unthinkable that you were not the Messiah. That everyone there knew so well that you were the Messiah that they laid their lives down before you through their cloaks and their branches saying, Wherever you go, we go. Live or die, we're with you. God, we're 2,000 years beyond that. And I fear, Spirit of God, that these things have become ordinary to us. And I'm asking you, Spirit of God, I'm begging you, would you make them extraordinary for us again? 
Allow us to stare into our darkness that was and our life that is and see all that you have done and allow us to give ourselves wholeheartedly once again, not to the thousand distractions, but to you, obsessed and captivated by what you have done for us. May this week be an extraordinary week for us, Spirit of God, all of us. And may we come awake in ways we have never come awake to the depths and the wonder of your rescue of us. And as we come awake, may we use that freedom that is born to love others in a manner that glorifies you and creates redemption for you on your behalf as ambassadors empowered by you. We love you, Jesus. Spirit of God, we, we honor you. We worship you. Father, we adore you. God, we lay our lives down for you. Awaken us, please. Amen.